Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 76. Last week, I summarized the middle third or so of the book of Genesis, from Chapter 28 to Chapter 45, essentially the first part of the story of Jacob and his family. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up the summary of Genesis at that point and working through the end of the book. Also, be sure to stick around until the end of the episode as there is an important programming note. And with that, or as I usually say, so let's get started. So starting off in Genesis chapter 46, it is in this chapter that Jacob begins his journey towards Egypt. But before he sets out, He has a dream where God makes an appearance. In this dream, God told him not to be afraid and that he would make him a great nation there. Also, God relays that he will indeed see his son Joseph in Egypt, and it is in Egypt that he will die. After that, Jacob and his family begin the trek. The wagons that Pharaoh had allowed them to take proved useful, carrying Jacob himself, the brother's children, and their wives. Since the family is full of shepherds, they also took their livestock and much of their material possessions from Canaan to Egypt. The text makes note that Jacob's daughters also made the journey, presumably with their husbands, if they were married. The text actually provides a census of the people who make the trip to Egypt with Jacob, at least those who were his own offspring, so his blood relatives which means not including the wives of his sons. Overall, it was a total of 66 people related to Jacob, a rather sizable family. Good thing they had those wagons. While on the road to Goshen, Jacob sends Judah ahead, and the entire family finally makes it there. When Joseph is told of their arrival, he jumps in his chariot to hurry north for the reunion with his father he had no doubt been dreaming of. The text reads that when they are finally reunited, Joseph presented himself to his father, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck for a good while. Jacob then said to Joseph, I can die now, having seen for myself that you are still alive. It was an emotional reunion for both father and son, and Jacob didn't die just yet. The text continues, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our ancestors in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. End quote. And Joseph seems to have had an underlying motivation. Why? Well, the answer to that question can be found in the next chapter, 47. In the beginning of that chapter, and as was alluded to just a minute ago, Joseph presents his family to Pharaoh, but not all of them. He picks five of his brothers, and the text is silent on who exactly made the cut. In a few minutes, I'll cover Jacob's thoughts on his sons, which may have had some bearing on who spoke to Pharaoh. 
Just as Joseph had told them he would, Pharaoh asked about their occupations, and they answered as they were instructed. They also elaborated on the famine in Canaan. Pharaoh then tells Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know that they are capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now obviously, Pharaoh trusted Joseph with his wealth. And he should have, as Joseph had made him a very rich dictator. And now Pharaoh wanted to ensure that Joseph's family was happy, too. Next, Jacob presented himself to Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he is, and Jacob gives the benevolent dictator an answer to that question as 130, and a bit more, saying that his ancestors lived much longer. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and departed. Joseph settles his father and his brothers and their families in the best land of Egypt, as Pharaoh had instructed. Joseph also provided his father's brothers and all of their dependents with food and supplies. Then, the text adjusts perspective to focus on the general events in Egypt, which includes a description of how severe the continued famine was there. During this time, Joseph, acting on behalf of Pharaoh, apparently sold grain to the Canaanites as well as the Egyptians, and most likely to other regional groups too. Business was good enough that Joseph, quoting, collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, end quote. For emphasis, all of the money to be found in the area. A monopoly unlike anything that exists in our current Western world. Now, if there were such a thing as a biblical, maybe archaeological, or ancient historical economist, this would be a great topic for study. Scarcity, inflation, money supply, all of the typical economic concerns, and all rolled into one. The text also shows that Pharaoh, with Joseph acting as his agent, was doing this to his own people. In the years of plenty, he, meaning Pharaoh and Joseph, either seized or bought the grain from the people, the text is silent on which, and then he sold it back to them. In our modern Western world, off the top of my head, I'm having a hard time coming up with an equivalent. I can think of a few obscure examples, like radio frequencies that a typical Western government claims is a public asset, and then auctions off to the highest bidder. But radio frequencies are not necessary for life itself, like food is. But I digress. When the people of the region had no more money and no more food, they went to Joseph and demanded that he give them the food before they starved to death. Then Joseph told them that they could exchange their livestock for food. They did as he suggested and brought their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. Apparently, the exchange of livestock for food provided enough for the people to get by for another dry year. Like I previously covered, the list that I just went through of livestock was from the New Revised Standard Version. The King James lists cattle instead of herds and uses a different, more colorful word for donkeys, the one you shouldn't covet. The New International also lists cattle instead of herds, 
and instead of flocks, it lists sheep and goats. But all three really drive home the point of how desperate the people were. After all, their livestock were a significant portion of their assets, and their promise of the future. The next year, the famine continued, and the people came back, saying, We cannot hide from my lord that our money is all spent, and that the herds of cattle are my lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed, so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. End quote. And Pharaoh, with Joseph once again acting as his agent, took the people up on their offer. He bought their land and cast them into slavery in exchange for food. The Egyptian priests were exempt from this, as they had been subsiding on a government stipend and therefore did not need to sell themselves into bondage. The narrative wraps up with Joseph giving the new slaves seed for planting in exchange for 20% of the production being returned to Pharaoh. Biblical sharecroppers. Then, the narrative circles back to Jacob, just for a second, as a prelude to chapter 48. The last part tells of how his family prospered in Goshen, gaining both possessions and the family itself growing in number, which also serves to indicate that Jacob and his sons did not have to sell themselves into slavery. As he was nearing death at the age of 147 years, he summons Joseph, where Jacob asks, and Joseph promises to bury him at the family tomb in Canaan. Remember what God told Jacob before he left to be reunited with Joseph? Also, since in this passage he was 147, and when the family arrived in Egypt he was 130, he had obviously lived there for 17 years. And with all that, the chapter concludes. Which brings me to chapter 48. In this part of the chapter, apparently a little time has passed, as Joseph has journeyed from Goshen back to his home, which is presumably more in the interior of Egypt. He is then told that his father is sick, so he makes the trip back to Goshen to visit Jacob. And this time, he took his sons, who we later learn have never met their grandfather. He had been there 17 years, and they had never met him. When Joseph arrives, Jacob gathers his strength and addresses his son. Jacob reminds Joseph of the blessing God bestowed on him so many years ago. He then passes that blessing along to Joseph's sons, but not in the manner Joseph had hoped. His father showed a preference for Joseph's youngest son, Ephraim, a preference that Joseph didn't quite agree with. However, he does tell Joseph that his sons shall be treated as if they were Jacob's sons and Jacob discloses Joseph's inheritance will be more than that of his brothers. All of this once again showing that he was his father's favorite. And that ends chapter 48. In the text of chapter 49, Jacob summons all of his sons to bestow their individual blessings, and his words are generally regarded as poetic, so not to be taken literally, but instead are allusions to what is to come many years, centuries in fact, later. And Jacob didn't bite his lip. 
his last words to some of his sons were probably not very pleasing. To Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, he hurls a few not very nice words, foreshadowing the smaller territory their tribes will receive much later. He praises Judah and goes on for a minute on how his descendants will rule over those of his brothers, which helps to explain why later, when the territory is divided, the house of Judah is allotted so much more than that of his brothers. Zebulun was given a coastal region, and therefore a port, with its border at Sidon. Dan was appointed as a judge of his people. Jacob then says that Gad shall be raided by raiders, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall provide royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears lovely fawns. He then gets to his favorite and addresses Joseph, whom he calls a fruitful bough, meaning a branch of a tree. He went on to describe how God is with Joseph, as if there should have been any doubt at this point. And God will continue to bless his family. This passage is also the first use of the word shepherd in a figurative sense in the Bible. I covered this more in depth a few episodes ago, but one part of that bears repeating. When you read Psalm 23, or even much of the wisdom of Jesus, this is where that use of the word originates, with Jacob's last words to Joseph. And, as a note, later in the Old Testament, we will see that there is no tribe of Joseph, and instead there are tribes named after his sons, fulfilling Jacob's promise about making Joseph's sons as if they were his own. Last, he addresses Benjamin as a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. And Levi doesn't get a tribe at all, but only because he is considered the father of all priests. At the end of the chapter, Jacob asks, well, reminds Joseph of his desire to be buried in the family tomb in Canaan. And after this, he dies, and the chapter ends. Which brings me to Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter in this monumentous book. Of course, Jacob dies at the end of 49, and in the beginning of 50, Joseph throws himself on his father and weeps. And then his leadership instinct kicks in. He ordered the physicians to embalm his father, and they did as he commanded. And all three versions I use for the podcast call the people physicians, but it's clear that our modern concept of a physician is something different. The embalming process, according to Genesis, took 40 days. After the embalming in the narrative, it's mentioned that the Egyptians mourned for 70 days. After this mourning period had passed, Joseph asked Pharaoh for a leave of absence so that he could take his father's body back to Canaan and bury him. In doing so, he informed the Egyptian monarch that he had promised his father he would complete the rites as his father had requested. And of course, Pharaoh granted his valuable employee the requested time off. And the funeral possession was no small matter. The text in the New Revised Standard Version reads that, Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Both chariots and charioteers went up with him, 
it was a very great company. End quote. The story continues. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they held there a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed a time of mourning for his father seven days. After this, they carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, the field near Mamre, which Abraham bought as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury Jacob. After Jacob was buried, Joseph's brothers became concerned for their future, specifically with their brother Joseph. Overall, they thought he would now have his revenge for what they had done to him so many years, decades really, before. The text reads, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to harm me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people, as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. End quote. The next section and the last part of the chapter and book focus on Joseph's last days and death. In summary, some time passes during which certainly many events occurred, but the text is silent. The seven-year famine no doubt came to an end, but Joseph's brothers remained in Goshen after the end of the famine and without explanation. And when the text picks up, it's at the point where Joseph is nearing death. We're told of how he lived to be 110 years old. Also, he saw three generations of Ephraim's, his second son's children. And Manasseh's, his eldest. Well, his grandkids were apparently born on Joseph's knee. No doubt not literally true, but a metaphor that he knew them as infants and probably remained close to the several generations of his own family. And apparently, Joseph was outlived by at least two of his brothers. As the text reads, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And interestingly, the brothers are not named, and we're not even told of what happened to his favorite brother, Benjamin. Finally, Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, When God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. Almost the same promise he made to his father. Almost. Just without the immediate need for his body to be transported back. And then Joseph died, being 110 years old. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the end of chapter 50, and therefore the end of the book of Genesis. And now for a programming note. 
When I first started the podcast, I think in the introduction episode, I said that chapter 2 would consist of the episodes concerning the history around the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. But at that time, I had no idea that Genesis alone would take 76 episodes, a year and a half, so that chapter 2 does not end up with literally hundreds of episodes. I'm ending it here. For clarity, I'm ending the chapter here. When I start the history surrounding Exodus next week, I'll also begin chapter 3. And that's not the only change. I'll also re-record the introductory episode. My decision to do this isn't simply due to the restructuring of the episode numbering format, but also to better set the tone for what is to come. The whole hindsight thing. Also, I'm just going to go ahead in that very first episode and apologize for all the ancient names that I mispronounced throughout the first and second chapters. There'll be a few other tweaks, but certainly nothing worthy of an extensive note to you, my longtime listeners. And with that, I'll end chapter two. Join me next week when I'll kick off the book of Exodus. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. And as always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And those of you that have reached out to me with words of encouragement, you know who you are. I truly appreciate it. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.